0: Welcome to The Lesson for Sunday School today from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills. I'm glad that you've joined us today. We are continuing our look at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And today we actually move into the first chapter of Nehemiah. The title of the lesson is A Person with Passion. Now, we're using the Nazarene Quarterly, if you want to look at that. This is the lesson from uh, June 28th a person with passion. Before we begin, let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day that you've given us. We thank you for the opportunity to come into your presence, to, to learn from you, to study your word, and we just ask for your anointing, Lord, upon this time together in your name. Amen. What's the most unusual job you've ever had? Around the world, there are people with some pretty weird jobs. There are people that are hired to sleep in hotel beds and write a, re- write a review. There are people hired to watch TV shows on Netflix. There are even people who are hired to watch paint dry. Now, does it, do any of those jobs sound interesting to you? Today, we're looking about a man with a, an unusual occupation. His job was to be a professional poison detector. Before any food or drink was given to the king, it was his job to test it first. If he takes a sip of the wine and doesn't drop dead, the king knows that it's safe to drink. We are looking at Nehemiah. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes of Persia. As we've said, this meant he was part of the king's security system, his job to make sure that nobody poisoned the king. He was also the chief financial officer of the king. He was the bearer of the signet ring, which made the laws official. So you can see, Nehemiah was in a position of unique importance and influence. The king would have, have, would have to have absolute trust in Nehemiah. He was literally trusting Nehemiah with his life. Now, Nehemiah was important because he enjoyed unique access to the king. He could enter into the king's presence. And so this would make him a, a powerful person in the kingdom. He lived in the palace as part of the king's court. So all of this meant Nehemiah lived a very privileged existence. His life was one of wealth and comfort and power. We talk today about the 1%, you know, those billionaires at the very top of our society. Well, Nehemiah would have been part of the 1% of his day. In today's scripture, we find Nehemiah living in the citadel of Susa. He's going about his responsibilities when he has visitors. His brother and other men arrive from Jerusalem, and Nehemiah asks them about how a Jerusalem is doing, what's happening there. And he gets bad news. Jerusalem is in ruins. Its walls are in disrepair. Its gates are burned with fire. And when Nehemiah hears this, he sits and weeps for some days, mourning, fasting, praying over this situation. Then he goes before the king and he asks for permission to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. After the king determines how long this will take, the king does give him permission. And so Nehemiah travels back to Jerusalem. And then we find that he is successful. He's able to convince the people to rebuild the walls. And they get this accomplished in a very short period of time. Our text today comes from Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And then chapter 2, looking at the first six verses and then 16 through 18. Now, I put the text on a slide for you, so let's begin to read with chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hecaliah, In the month of Kislev in the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me, And what the king had said to me. So we see from this scripture. Nehemiah is a man with a vision and a passion to see God's people restored. And this means that the walls of Jerusalem will need to be rebuilt. There are are two main reasons for this. First, the wall being in ruins means the people are not secure. Without a wall, they are in constant danger from their enemies. And they're in danger of assimilating into the people around them. But a second reason is that a wall in ruins is a disgrace, a disgrace to the exiles. And because these are God's people, it's a disgrace to God himself. And so today we can look around and we see a lot of serious threats in our society. The corona epidemic, the economic depression that's happening, the racial unrest, you know, our political situation, all of this uh, seem to be problems just in excess of what we've faced before. But these really are not our main problem. Our biggest problem is we are a nation without God. We are a nation in disgrace because we've neglected to make God a part of our lives. And even in the church, we find many who have adopted the name of Christian, but they have no true salvation. So, Nehemiah has important lessons for us. How can we act to set things right in our society, in our churches? We're not called to build a wall, but we're called to help redeem and restore our culture. We're called to see those without Christ brought into the kingdom. Today, in our lesson about Nehemiah, we're going to look at three important uh, principles or lessons that we can learn from Nehemiah. First, we see Nehemiah's heart was broken when he heard about the condition of Jerusalem. His heart was broken even though he himself was not personally impacted by this. We have to have a heart for those without God. God's heart is broken by those who are trapped in sin, and our heart should be as well. We have to get to the point where our hearts are broken by the things that break God's heart. A second point we see is Nehemiah did not only feel for the exiles, but he did something. He left his comfort zone and he took action. Too often, even when we feel compassion for those without God, we never translate this into action. If we're going to see our world transformed, we have to move out of our comfort zone and we have to set a plan into action. Finally, we see from Nehemiah that he saw incredible success. This wall had been under construction for decades and nothing much had been uh, established, had been accomplished. Nehemiah saw the wall rebuilt in just 52 days. He made himself available to be used by God and God used him to accomplish great things. We can have lots of excuses about why we don't reach those who are without God. We need more money. We need more people. We need more training. But the reality is, if we make ourselves available to be used by God, God will use us to do things we never dreamed possible. Our first main point, Nehemiah learns that the exiles who have returned to Jerusalem are in trouble. They are in trouble and disgrace because the walls of the city are destroyed. The gates are burned with fire. I have a slide here with the first four verses of chapter one from Nehemiah. And in these verses, we see that Nehemiah receives this horrible news. You know, his brother has come back from Jerusalem and they tell him that the gates are burned with fire. The city walls lay in ruins And I want you to look especially at verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So this news about the wall, it doesn't really mean a lot to us. We don't live in walled cities, but it really was bad news. A wall in ruins means Jerusalem was unprotected. The people weren't safe. Their enemies could get to them. Now, these city walls were very large. The wall Hezekiah built was approximately 16 feet wide. Uh, They were effective when Nebuchadnezzar brings his army against Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to Jerusalem for two and a half years, and they are safe behind that wall. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar never breaks through the wall. The armies of Judah actually break out from the inside to try to escape. Now, without a wall, there was a danger that the entire effort to return from exile would fail. That those exiles who had returned, that they would move away. They would be assimilated into the surrounding towns and villages. But even more than the physical danger uh, that the wall represented... The lack of a wall was a disgrace. It symbolized the poverty and the ruin of the nation. It let everyone know that God had forsaken them. And because they were known to be the people of God, the ruined wall brought disgrace upon God Himself. If God's people were weak and powerless, this meant their God was weak and powerless. We have an example for this after the Israelites refused to go into the land of Canaan, Moses begs with God not to destroy them. And he gives a very unique reason. He says, "Don't destroy them because it will dishonor your name." I have a slide here of Numbers of uh, chapter 14. And it's Moses is talking and he says, "If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, The Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Nehemiah couldn't bear to think of God's name being dishonored, of God being thought of as weak and powerless, as insufficient. And so when he hears this news, it devastates him. He can't stand up. It says he sits and weeps for days, mourning, fasting, praying. So We see him mourning. He feels the loss of this, grieving for what could have been, for what should have been. By now, the exiles had been back in the land of Judea for almost 90 years. Jerusalem should have been a glowing testimony to God and His goodness, but instead it's still in ruins. We have to ask ourselves, do we truly grieve when God's work goes undone? when so many around us remain unsaved. Now, Nehemiah also fasts, deliberately giving up food. He's forsaking his own comfort. How can he enjoy his food and his drink when God is weeping over this? And then he prays. He pleads with God to do something about this situation. Uh, Nehemiah isn't willing to just accept the status quo to see a destroyed, a disgraced Jerusalem as normal. Now, he has no personal stake in this. Nehemiah has a very comfortable life in the palace, but his heart is in tune with God. He is feeling what God is feeling. You know, he doesn't let his own personal comfort or security keep him from identifying with those who need God's help. In America, we live very comfortable, secure lives. All of us do. And it can become easy for our lives to to become self-centered. You know, the average church reflects this. We spend most of our time and most of our money making the people of the church comfortable. Have you ever heard of a church that gave up air conditioning to spend that money on missions? Look at the programs we offer. Jesus spoke very plainly. If we want to be considered as sheep rather than goats, we should be giving something to eat to those who are hungry, something to drink to those who are thirsty, clothes to those who need clothing. We should be looking after the sick, visiting those in prison, and on and on. But in most churches, the majority of our activities are about the members enjoying themselves. We have holiday dinners. We have Valentine banquets. We have trips to uh, specific places. We have pizza for the youth services and donuts for the Sunday school classes. And there's nothing sinful about these things. But my point is, how sincere are we in reaching our world when most of our time and money is spent on the comfort, the amusement of the people of the church? Do we really feel the heartbreak of those around us? I have a slide here of a quote from Bob Pierce. He was the founder of World Vision, and he's known for this quote, Let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. And we have to ask ourselves, what would the church be like if this was how we truly felt? So how do we do this? How do we cultivate a heart for the lost? We can begin by simply asking God for a heart that's touched by the need of those without Him. We can admit our self-centeredness. We can ask God to change our hearts, to become more like His heart. And this sounds very simple and basic, but how many of us have really ever prayed this prayer? We can also remind ourselves of what is at stake. There are real eternal consequences to being without God. We get so caught up in this world, we forget everything around us is temporary. Everything is going to vanish at some point, except for the people that we come into contact with. I have a slide here from a quote by C.S. Lewis. He writes, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. He goes on to say, Nations, cultures, even civilizations, these are temporary. Their lives compared to ours are like those of a gnat. But the people we see every day, those that we uh, live with, those that we work with, these people are immortal. Once born, they are never going to stop existing. And so, do we really understand that? Finally, we need to recognize when God uses us, He is giving us a great privilege. Jesus told his disciples, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. And his disciples ask, Well, who then can be saved? And Jesus says something uh, very striking to us. He says, With man it's impossible, but with God all things are impossible. So when we are called to join with God in reaching those who are not saved, we are called to join in doing the impossible. We have the opportunity to be part of God's incredible plan of redemption. Our second point is, Nehemiah feels this issue very deeply. He doesn't stop just with empathy. He takes action. He does something. I have a, a set of texts here, a slide with the verses from chapter 2. And... In this section of Scripture, we find Nehemiah going before the king. And the king notices that Nehemiah is sad. And he asks him, what's wrong? And Nehemiah tells him, you know, I'm sad because of the state of Jerusalem, my city, my town. And then he tells the king what he would like to do. And the king gives him permission to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild these walls. So When we look at this, we can see there are approximately four months that pass between the time that Nehemiah hears the news about the walls, this is the month Kislev, and when he goes before the king, which is the month Nisan. During this time, Nehemiah is praying, no doubt pleading with God to send someone, to do something, and God does something. But God sends Nehemiah. You know, a lot of times when we are moved by a situation, it may be this is the first step that God is using to put a call upon our own hearts. Now, Nehemiah doesn't just spend his time praying. He spends his time planning. He goes before the king. The king learns about the situation and asks Nehemiah, what do you want to do? And Nehemiah is prepared. He knows exactly what he wants to do. He has a specific plan worked out, and so he knows when he wants to go, when he will be able to return. Now, we often underestimate the importance of planning. We feel sometimes that it's more spiritual just to do everything on the fly and let the Spirit guide us. But uh, there is a place for planning. Now, I have a slide here from Luke chapter 12 where Jesus tells his disciples He says, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers, authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For at that time, the Holy Spirit will teach you what you should say. And so we may look at this and think, well, we don't really need to plan to prepare. But look at the example of Paul. Paul, uh, from his letters, from his speeches, it's evident that Paul spent a lot of time thinking through exactly how he would explain the message of salvation, how he would defend and present the gospel. In fact, after his conversion, there's a gap of almost 10 years before Paul begins his missionary activities. So he didn't just immediately rush out and begin preaching. He spent time thinking through these things, planning what he wants to do. I have another slide here of a quote from Dr. Neil Wiseman. He says, prayer and planning are Siamese twins in helping the Christian leader achieve great things for God. And so we can see here that Nehemiah not only uh, was praying, Nehemiah was planning. And then he was willing to take action. He was willing to leave his comfort zone. And so uh, the new circumstances where Nehemiah would find himself, these were very different from the comfort that he lived in. But he felt like it was worth it to swap his old life for a new one. I have a slide here of a verse from Hebrews. And this is talking about Moses, where it talks about something very similar. Hebrews eleven twenty-four and 25 says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin for a season. And Nehemiah took this same attitude. It's interesting here, we see Nehemiah act even though he is afraid. It's, the scripture tells us he let himself be sad in the king's presence, and he asked permission to leave the court. Now, both of these were severe violations of protocols. In many courts of the time, it was forbidden to be sad in the presence of the king. The idea was the king is such a wonderful presence that if you are in the king's presence, all of your problems, all of your worries should melt away. You should forget everything. They should be of no importance to you. So if you're in the king's presence and you're sad, you are dishonoring the king. For to be in the king's presence is automatically the very best place you could be. And so, evidently, Nehemiah realized he was putting himself at risk by being sad in the king's presence. But he did this anyway to ask permission to leave the court. Now, in the last point we see, Nehemiah cast a vision for the exiles. And God works a mighty work through him. I have a slide here of the last couple of verses from our text. In these verses, Nehemiah is back in Jerusalem and he has inspected the wall and then he comes to the officials of Jerusalem and it says the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priest or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them. You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. Now, we don't learn of it from this text, but in just a little over 50 days, the wall is rebuilt. And this is something that the exiles had been unable to accomplish, but now it's done in less than two months. So the lessons for us, we can see a lot of reasons why things can't be accomplished. And yet, if we're fully obedient to God, He is ready to do great things through us, things that we could never imagine. The original exiles, they had returned about 90 years before Nehemiah, So when Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem, he's not talking to the ones who originally came back. He's talking to their children or even grandchildren. These are people who've grown up in the land of Jerusalem after the exiles have returned. They've grown up in a Jerusalem without walls. This was their normal. They really couldn't imagine anything else. And then Nehemiah shows up and he tells them, he says, Things can be different. We can rebuild these walls. In the next chapter of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 3, we get a description of how this is done. Uh, There's a list of names and a description of what they built. And I have an example for you on a slide. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. It reads, The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassaniah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshelam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Benah, also made repairs. And so we can see from chapter 3, it lists who did what, each specific one repairing a specific section of the wall. So, Nehemiah showed up. He didn't show up with a lot of new money and a lot of new resources, a lot of new workers. He didn't show up with a new design for rebuilding the wall. In fact, Nehemiah didn't really bring them anything that they didn't already have. So, we have to ask ourselves, what changed? Why did the wall get built after Nehemiah showed up? especially when it had been laying in ruins for years. Nehemiah didn't provide them with anything they didn't already have. They didn't build it because it had never entered their minds that it was possible until Nehemiah shows up and he casts a vision before the people to tell them, we can remove this disgrace of a wall. We can put things right. So, the people were blind to what God wanted to do, to what God could do. We find many examples of this in our society today. I have a friend who's close to my age, and she attends church occasionally. She probably was baptized at some point. But really, she is a a complete and utter pagan. Now, she's not a pagan in the sense that she doesn't know about Jesus, She knows who Jesus was. She knows that there are people called Christians, but she has no idea that Christ is real and that the Christian life is something totally different from the life most people experience. To her, a Christian is someone who is exactly like she is, except the Christian may go to church, they don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't cuss. But she feels like that the Christian experiences life in the exact same way that she does. The Christian has the same emotions, feels the same things, has the same confusion, but they are just calling themselves by a different name. She has no idea that to be a Christian means you experience life in a totally new way, that you have an ongoing interaction with Christ, that each day is a different experience from when you were not a Christian. She has no idea that Christ can be a real living presence in your life. She has no idea of how the Spirit can work in your life, how the Spirit empowers Christians, how the Spirit comforts Christians, how we have fellowship with uh, the Spirit and with our Lord Jesus Christ. All of this means nothing to her. And this was similar to the people in Nehemiah's day, They had no idea of what Nehemiah was talking about until he shows up and tells them, we can build this wall. And we have to do the same thing to these people who have no idea of what it means to be a Christian. We can show up and say, Jesus can become a part of your life. Jesus can open up to you a brand new way of life to give your life a meaning and a purpose that it never had before. Now, so many people are like this today. They may attend church regularly. They may consider themselves Christians. They have no understanding of what is possible in Christ. So, Nehemiah cast a vision. He reminded the exiles of the reality of their situation. Now, when he arrives, he takes the time to make a thorough inspection, to see what must be done. And when he talks to the people... He doesn't sugarcoat anything. He doesn't minimize the situation. He tells them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. So he doesn't try to give them false hope. He lays out the situation. And too many times we think, well, we have to downplay the situation. We have to be cheerful and optimistic at all times. But faith is facing the true reality and proceeding anyway based on the belief that God can overcome. God calls us to live in the real world, and this is what Nehemiah told the people. He reminded them of what was really at stake here. This wasn't just a problem with a physical wall. They were a disgrace to their God. Nehemiah says, Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. So the wall was a threat to their physical safety, but it was much more than this. It was an opportunity for the people around them to judge them and through them to judge their God. And so they were dragging God's name into disrepute. And uh, Jeremiah reminded them of what God promised. Uh, Nehemiah, I'm sorry, reminded them of what God promised. He told them about the gracious hand of his God upon him, of what the king had said to him. So he reminds them they have what they need to do the job. They just need to start on it. And so Nehemiah casts the vision. We see Nehemiah making himself available to God and God using him in miraculous ways. Now, Nehemiah was obviously a man of great talent and ability. No doubt he was intelligent, he had political skills, he was a leader. But Scripture makes it plain. Nehemiah did not build this wall. Chapter 3 of Nehemiah lists those who did. It was rebuilt by the people of the exile themselves. It was rebuilt because they saw the need and realized that this could be done. So we have to ask ourselves, what can God do through us if we are willing to be used by him, if we are willing to come out of our comfort zone. I have a slide here of by, with a quote from Henry Varley, and he's speaking to Dwight L. Moody. He said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. And so the question becomes, what could God do through us if we were open to his leading? And specifically, what are we going to do to win those around us to Christ? I have another quote here I want to share with you, and this is by Vance Havner. He writes, The tragedy of our time is that the situation is desperate, but the saints are not. When Jesus makes his entry on Palm Sunday, he's entering into the city of Jerusalem. Scripture tells us that he begins to weep. He says, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. And that applies so much to our world. If the people around us only knew what would bring them peace, but it's hidden from their eyes. We have the the knowledge of what brings peace, but are we sharing it with them? Are we providing this information to them. The Nazarene Publishing House puts out a book by Stan Toler and Louis Bustle called Each One Win One. And this is, is an idea that each person can win one other person, and by doing so, the church can grow. You know, what if we took that challenge seriously? If that were the case, we would be experiencing exponential growth. And think of what that means. Today, in our world, there are over 2 billion Christians. Now, if only 25% of these were Christians in reality, they weren't just calling themselves Christians or saying, I'm a Christian because I'm not Buddhist or Hindu or anything else. But if 25% of these were actual Christians, that's around 500 million Christians. If each Christian wins a new Christian, not just in one year, but in two years, we would be at uh, one billion Christians. In four years, you're talking about two billion Christians. In six years, you're talking about four billion. In eight years, you're talking about eight billion. In 10 years, you're talking about 16 billion, when the entire population of the world is only expected to be a little over eight billion. Now, you can look at this and say, well, obviously that's not going to happen, and it won't. But think of the possibilities if every Christian took seriously the idea that they can win another Christian uh, to the church or to God. Think of what could be accomplished. But we have to learn the lessons of Nehemiah. We have to be willing to get out of our comfort zones to take action to allow God to use us in the way that he wants to. And just like Nehemiah was able to see this wall rebuilt in just a little over 50 days, we can see incredible things happen for God as well, if we're willing to be used by God. And so I I hope that is your your prayer and your aim uh, throughout this next week. And then uh, throughout this year and, and the rest of your life, really, to allow God to work through you. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this lesson and for the example that we have of Nehemiah, a man who minded you and saw you accomplish great things. And we ask you to help us to follow his example, to be the church that you would have us to be in your name. Amen.